You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hey friends, before the next episode, I wanted to share a bit more about my virtual recovery community called The Recovery Collective. For less than a cost of one therapy session per month, our members get access to workshops, group coaching with me, cook-alongs, yoga, recipes, meditations, and even a private Facebook community. It is seriously the most fun community in the eating disorder recovery world right now. If your eating disorder is making you feel isolated and alone, this place will lift your spirits and bring you the connection you're looking for. So I ask you to join all of us. Go to recoverycollective.mykajabi.com or you can check out the link in the show notes. I look forward to seeing you inside the collective and enjoy this next episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Full and Thriving Podcast. Thank you so much for being with us today. Today, I have an amazing guest. I'm so excited. She's actually a therapist who specializes in anxiety disorders, OCD, and eating disorders, and other disorders under that anxiety category. This is Kimberly Quinlan. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. And for those of you listening, I sought out Kimberly because so many of you were asking me about how eating disorders are related to OCD. And I wanted to bring in a specialist. So Kimberly, it's just great to have you here. I think you're going to answer so many questions that the listeners have. Sure, I know. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited. <laughs> I also want to let you know that after I discovered you and decided I wanted to have you on the podcast, I was reading your website and you also specialize in things like nail biting and skin picking. And I have, I feel like I would have been the perfect client for you back in the day because I'm, I've, I've lived with, I lived with an eating disorder growing up. I'm recovered from that. And I am a chronic nail biter, skin picker, mouth chewer. This is something I'm like secretly really hoping I can learn from you. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So no, those, um, we call those body focused repetitive behaviors. That's their classification. Um, They're very common alongside OCD and anxiety disorders. And because of the big connection between eating disorders, they're common there as well. Okay, good to know. Maybe I'll take home a few things for myself after chatting with you today. But before we dive into OCD and eating disorders, I really wanted to learn more about your background. So could you please share a little bit about yourself 
with the listeners today? Sure. Yeah. So I myself am in recovery from an eating disorder. Um, I have been, I think, in recovery for probably 12 or 15 years, 12 or something like that. Um, when I decided to become a therapist, I really wanted to specialize in anxiety. And so I landed an intern position at an OCD center. It was the one place I could get um, an internship where I could run groups, which was originally my plan. Um, and before, and I never, ever met anyone with OCD in my whole entire life that I knew of. And I started to get into this work and I just fell in love with it. And I really started to see such an overlap between my eating disorder behaviors and similar sort of compulsions that people with OCD do. And so I just fell in love. And that's sort of why I stuck with OCD as my main specialty. And then since then, it's just, you know, as you're saying, like so many people have this overlap of these additional coexisting disorders. And so I continue to get training in those areas. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trained in all the overlaps, but the specific overlaps that I chose. Mm-hmm. What do you think made you fall in love with helping people with anxiety disorders and OCD specifically? Um, so I just find, well, I always say um, being in therapy with my clients is like church for me. It's where I feel the most connected. It's where I, I, I love when we're sharing like our deepest, darkest fears. For, for some reason, that is just like where my heart opens the most. And so I think that with OCD, because there are, and with anxiety, there are so many deep, dark places our fear can take us um, that I just really love that piece of the work. Um, The other piece of the thing, the work that I love so much is that I love doing what we call exposure and risk prevention, which is the gold standard treatment for OCD and social phobias and specific phobias. And now we know with some eating disorders as well is it's this practice of facing your fear purposely going for your fear. And I just find this to be a delightful concept. Um, And it really stuck with me and it really resonates with me. And so I love doing that with my clients. It's Mm -hmm. like we do this horrible type of work together, but it's (laughs) so rewarding and it can come with such empowerment. So it's sort of this amazing sort of work that we get to do. That is really fascinating. And I I feel like you're just a brave adventurer, just diving into the face of fear, you know, someone who wants to help people face their fears head on. And it is really uncomfortable work, but it is so valuable. And I see that as an eating disorder recovery coach, helping people, you know, with their fear foods and overcoming those things that feel really scary to them. And there's a lot of fear behind it. But after we do the session a few times and repeat the exposure a few times, it becomes a normal food to them again. And it's, just really a beautiful experience to watch that. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. It's just so fun. So that's sort of why I get all geeked out about it. That's cool. Oh, I love that. So could you explain a little bit more about what OCD is for those who might not know, and then also how OCD can coexist with eating disorders? Sure. So OCD is obsessive compulsive disorder. So let's define an obsession. 
an obsession, this is the big misunderstanding. So there are many misunderstandings about OCD. Mm-hmm. And one of them is that obsession means you like it, right? That you like things, right? So you, some people go, oh, I have such an obsession with this new lipstick or I'm so obsessed with such and such. So I love lining my things up. Um, so under the definition of OCD, an obsession is an unwanted, repetitive, intrusive thought or feeling or a sensation or an urge or an image, right? But it's repetitive, it's unwanted, and it's usually very, very distressing. Um, So that's sort of the criteria for having an obsession. And then when we have that obsession, of course, naturally, no one wants to feel that feeling. No one wants to have uncomfortable thoughts and feelings and sensations all day. And so what naturally we do as human beings is we end up doing a safety behavior to try and remove or reduce that discomfort. And we call that a compulsion. Uh, a compulsion is a behavior that is either physical or mental, right? And that's where, again, another big misconception about OCD is people will say, you don't have OCD, you never, I'd ever see you wash your hands, or I'm not seeing you line things up or jumping over cracks, you can't have OCD. But OCD, a lot of the compulsions are hidden, their mental rumination, their avoidance, their reassurance seeking, their Googling. Um, And so you may know someone who has OCD, and you don't know they have it because it's it's a lot of people with OCD end up hiding their compulsions. Now, the overlap with eating disorders is, you know, eating disorders often have a preoccupation around weight, but there are many ways in which OCD and eating disorders can overlap. So one of them being what we would call orthorexia, mm-hmm. which is cleanliness around food. So it's... Um, it's not that you're, it can be, but not always. It can, it's not that you're specifically wanting to be a lower weight or a different body size, like more typical anorexia or other eating disorders, but it's often around, um, I don't want to eat that food because it's not clean or it's unhealthy or it's tarnished or it's being tainted with badness. And so there is a lot of exclusion and restriction that happens with orthorexia to the point where often they're only eating a few food groups or a few few food items. Um, So that's one really common way that they interact. Um, It can also be not where they completely clash, but that two different diagnoses sort of interact and coexist together. So you might have anorexia um, around, you know, restricting food and wanting to change body weight and body size and so forth, while also having OCD around the numbers. So I can't have 150 grams of this, it has to be 155, or I can't have the number five. So I have to measure around that number, because five is tainted or six is tainted. Um, So that is often really common. In addition to that, Often people have an additional obsession around maybe choking or vomiting um, and that they're afraid of that and therefore they restrict because of fear. But then once they've restricted, they like the the result of restricting and then the eating disorder ramps up and then the two fears come together in this sort of hot, you know, hot explosion or storm of events. So there's just a couple of examples of ways they can overlap. Wow, there's so many different ways. And I, I feel like it would be confusing as someone who's not aware of these things to know what's really OCD and what's the eating disorder. Would you say mm-hmm. 
there's a way you can start to distinguish the two or is it okay taking them as one kind of conglomerate together when you're going through treatment? Yeah. See, we would always do a functional analysis and thorough assessment of the person. Um, You know, typically we usually identify, you know, when we're doing a diagnosis, we could identify an eating disorder as OCD, right? Because they've got an obsession and they've got a compulsion. Mm -hmm. And even though people with eating disorders sometimes want to lose weight or be a different body size or so forth, if you really question them, you know, usually if I said, you know, how is this working? Do you really want to think this way? Usually they would say no, just like someone with, with OCD. So they can look really similar. The, diagnostically, the main thing we, we separate between the two is whether the obsession is body related or food related. And that can be a diagnostic separation. But the truth is I myself the, one of the reasons I love treating people with OCD is the whole way in which OCD plays out was exactly how it played out for me, mm. right? Like it, I had, I could easily die, I could easily digest this cycle that I was stuck in. I have the thought, I do it, I do this compulsive exercise was big for me. Like I would calculate what I've taken in, I would exercise exactly that much off, uh, you know. And then, and then that would reinforce that I had that fear and that fear was important. So I do it again. And I was just stuck in this loop, Um, you know, and if I was unable to exercise, I would then calculate what I would need to restrict to keep, you know, so I think that they can look very, very similar and be treated very, very similar. Mm -hmm. I totally see what you're saying there. And I appreciate you sharing that example of your life what was the fear for you that you kept reinforcing in that cycle? If you don't mind sharing. Yeah. It was just weight gain, weight gain, weight gain. It was, you know, if I gained weight, I'll be seen as unsophisticated was a big core fear of mine. Um, I grew up in the country. Um, I grew up on a ranch, like a farmer's daughter. And I think I had a, I had really attached this belief that, I lived in the city and I didn't want people to know that about me. And I had some, again, this is all like, you know, anti-fat bias and and fat phobia that is deeply ingrained in me is this idea of like, if I'm in the city, I can't be seen as a farmer's daughter, which again is a total generalization, I realized. (laughs) Um, And so it was this cycle I got stuck in, in, you know, through, through, you know, through exposing myself to not, engaging in exercise and not, you know, restricting, I had to sort of face that. And were you guided with a therapist through that process? Or was that something you kind of figured out as you went? No, I had a great therapist. Um, She's, she's actually like saved my life, you know, and and it's funny because during, I'm actually more of a colleague with that therapist now, seeing that it's been so many years and, and she's mentioned to me like, oh, you protected yourself so much from me. Like you wouldn't let me in. And I think she kind of got me going. And then from there, um, I did some, a lot of the recovery on my own, but I was very protective. I would not let her in with some of the behaviors I was doing, I was a bit deceptive. <laughs> really? I see that all the time. So yeah. were you kind of hiding some things or only letting her in partially? Yeah, not, not on purpose. I didn't yeah. do it consciously. It wasn't, I didn't realize 
I wouldn't let myself accept it was an eating disorder. I'd, I still think if I'm being completely transparent, uh, a, a part of it for me was um, I didn't feel like I was disordered enough to say it was an eating disorder. So I would always call it anxiety. Like I just have anxiety about food, not yeah. an eating disorder. So I think I wouldn't even allow myself to really recognize how big the problem was. Mm. Yeah, I had the same experience and I was using overt behaviors <laughs> and <laughs> I didn't want to admit it or put myself in the eating disorder category for, for a few years, I would say just, I'm not that type of person kind of mentality. Mm. I didn't think I fell into that category, even though I had some blatantly obvious behaviors yeah. Um, I had bulimia. So like red flags everywhere that this yeah. is clearly an eating disorder. It's not diet culture telling you to have bulimia. It's just an eating disorder at that point. And yeah, I hid that for a very long time and did not admit to myself what was going on. If anything, I was being very elusive and saying things like I have problems with food yeah. or like my body image. And that was it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I hear <laughs> yeah. you. Yeah, totally. One thing I wanted to also ask you is, can you expand a little bit more about orthorexia and OCD? Just if you can just share more about what you see as probably common things, how someone might be able to start getting help for that. Cause I think that's a very common overlap. Yeah. So similar to um, other styles of eating disorder, the first thing to know about orthorexia is um, our society very much reinforces orthorexia, right? You know, you know, this belief that organic foods are better, you're, you know, you shouldn't put chemicals into your body and so forth. And so this is being fed to us everywhere right and i would even see news articles and doctors recommending these lifestyles right and i'm not a pro or against it i, I think the main thing for us to recognize is that people with orthorexia are often being c- communicated like there's junk food and we shouldn't have junk food and so forth so orthorexia the reason that we overlap it with ocd is it is related to contamination ocd so contamination is the fear of germs or um, some kind of top uh, substance or chemical um, often people will engage in hand washing to you know that's typical hand washing and avoidance to reduce the risk of being contaminated. With orthorexia, there is a food contamination where they will avoid or restrict different foods in fear that the food will contaminate them. Um, Similar to other eating disorders, people with orthorexia usually are um, don't want to, you know, change their behaviors because they do believe that they've been told and they've maybe some research to show that, you know, chemicals are bad or organic, you know, non-organic foods are bad for you. And so it, it, there's a, there's some really important concept at the beginning of treatment to really help educate them um, about, you know, that we can eat organic food, but we don't have to eat only organic food mm. and that the, you know, that non-organic food is actually not going to contaminate them. And so that's a huge part of treatment. Um, But the main compulsion, like I said, is a lot of avoidance, right? So restriction of food groups. 
Um, mostly by the time I see a patient with orthorexia, they're down to maybe a handful of foods. Mm. Um, and often they're very, very malnourished at that point. So we do need to have a medical team um, because even though they're eating the cleanest, most organically, you know, farm raised or, you know, um, sustainable food items, they're not getting the nourishment that they need and the variety that they need. And so there's often uh, iron deficiency or other nutrient deficiencies by the time we, we see them. Mm, wow. That contamination factor is very interesting to me because that wasn't something I lived with when I had my eating disorder, but I, you know, I do have friends who do have orthorexia or have had it, or they've just had germophobia. Mm-hmm. And the the idea of contaminating food, it just seems it's hard, it's hard to explain. I'm just, I'm just intrigued by that piece is so would you say it's a fear of to- toxic chemicals and things getting into the body that aren't meant to be there? That's really yeah. behind it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it it could be multiple things. It could, it see OCD picks whatever the heck it likes. It often doesn't need a lot of reasoning, right? It could just pick one thing. It could be, I don't want to, you know, we shouldn't have uh, one specific chemical and it could be just one. Right. Mm. And they could be okay with other forms of, of, of um, let's say uh, pesticide or some form of, chemical that keeps the the product uh, fresh and not get germs inside it. A lot of it, we have a lot of those to keep food safe so that we can all have access to really, you know, fresh food. Um, So it could be just one, or it could be a blanket statement, like nothing unorganic or nothing that's not farm raised, nothing that's not local. So it, it, OCD will jump onto whatever theory it wants. Doesn't need a ton of research behind it for it to catch on one thing. And so it depends on the patient. And I will make sure I emphasize a lot of people with um, anorexia, binge, you know, bulimia have orthorexia as well. Mm -hmm. So they're not just afraid of the contamination of the food. They also have an eating, a typical eating disorder or an atypical eating disorder where there's a fear of, um, you know, weight gain or body shape change and so forth. Mm, that's very interesting. So as far as treatment is concerned, you mentioned people might come to you with just a handful of safe foods that they're eating and they come to you in a very malnourished place. And there's a whole medical team involved trying to get them back to a recovered place. Mm -hmm. And what would you say are the first steps in treatment? Like what, what do you focus on when someone comes to you with that little bit of options for what they Mm -hmm. feel safe eating? Well, we have to do first a lot of psychoeducation because Mm -hmm. most people with, with these, they don't want to face their fear. They don't want to eat their feared foods. Why would I want to do something that's so uncomfortable when I'm already so uncomfortable, I'm already suffering. Um, So it's a lot of education about the cycle of obsessions and compulsions and helping them to understand that their avoidance and their compulsions are actually like reinforcing that fear. So we do a lot of education, a lot of compassion work at the start and a lot of uh, educating about potential tools that they can use 
not to remove their discomfort. We don't remove discomfort in treatment. Mm -hmm. It's counterintuitive, but we don't talk about how to reduce discomfort. We talk about allowing discomfort and writing waves of discomfort and urges. Um, And so we talk a lot about how we can actually interrupt that cycle Mm -hmm. where you're just stuck on a hamster wheel. We talk about, you know, that there is this, this sort of goes against the grain way of dealing with the cycle. Once we've done that, we identify all the obsessions and all the compulsions. And from there, we work at, so the, the gold standard treatment that I'm talking about is called exposure and response prevention. Mm-hmm. So when we have an obsession, we identify what they all are and we come up with ways we can expose you to your fear. It's usually eating food, right? <laughs> yes. But that's 50% of the work. The other 50% is that response prevention. So when you expose yourself, let's say, to a uh, non-organic carrot to start, let's say you pick one feared food, you expose yourself to that. Then we practice response prevention, which is then not engaging in other compulsions we would typically do, Mm -hmm. right? Which might be mental rumination, mental calculating, mental checking for fat on our body or checking some people go as far as like going for many, many blood tests, right? Or it could, could be anything. We might check for reassurance. Are you Googling, asking a loved one, am I going to be okay? And so forth. Um, We might check for self-criticism and self-judgment and self-punishment for eating that carrot, right? And these are little nuanced ways that we engage in reinforcing that feared cycle. And we work at undoing all of those compulsions. And then we, once we do that with the non-organic carrot, we move to the next thing, the non-organic wheat thins or whatever they're ready to do. Okay. Wow. So I, I think that it's pretty amazing to see that you do also address those responses. So it's not just the act of eating the non-organic carrot for the first time. You have 50% of the work still to be done, which is checking in with your client about how they might ease those stressors and anxieties since they had already had the carrot itself. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we work at reducing the compulsions we do around it. So use me as an example. Okay. Let's say my compulsion is to exercise exactly the amount of calories that I've eaten. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we say, you're going to eat your normal daily intake. Right. And maybe your exposure is to have for me, it was a burrito. That was my very first exposure. Um, So you're going to eat. I didn't eat the whole burrito, by the way. (laughs) Like I ate a little of the burrito, but that was a big step for me. So I ate the burrito. That's the exposure. Mm -hmm. The response prevention would then to be not to increase my exercise to make up for those additional calories. That's one part of response prevention. The other part is I'm not allowed to beat myself up. And the other part was I'm not allowed to mentally ruminate about all of the cellulite that I'm going to get from that burrito. I'm not allowed to mentally digest and go over all the feared outcomes. I'm to just be mindful and engage in my day. And in fact, a big part of my treatment was rest. Yeah. Like that was an exposure and that's a part of my response prevention as well. So that's sort of what it may look like in, in, mm-hmm. in treatment. Mm-hmm. I really love that. And I see that 
when, whenever I work with someone on a fear food, we, you know, we do ask the question, how are you going to stay one step ahead of your eating disorder? So Mm -hmm. what does your eating disorder like to do to ruin the integrity of this challenge? That's how I phrase it. So it feels similar in the sense that when I ask that question, people say, well, if I have this burrito, I'm going to try to go to the gym for an extra hour, or I might restrict this meal later xyz so it it's pretty much the, a similar approach yeah well and to be transparent my eating disorder therapist was not an erp therapist so yeah. she she ex, what we're doing is exactly what most eating disorder clinicians yeah. are doing yeah. um it's just that when what, what we find is if i have a patient who has ocd and i've already educated them on this process yeah. It's so much more easier for them to digest yeah. using the same tool instead of having to relearn a new language for their for eating sure. disorder. Yes, yes. So one thing you talked about that I want to dive into a little bit more is this idea of mental rumination and being able to stop that. Mm. That feels almost impossible a lot of the times in general. Yeah. Like once your brain is on something, it's really hard to stop that racing mind. And so yeah. how do you, how do you help people with OCD or eating disorders who kind of get into that dark place? Cause that's a really uncomfortable place to be. Yeah. So the, the first step is to talk with my patient about effectiveness, right? So we talk about when you're ruminating, what is it that you're actually trying to solve? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we then might ask some questions like, is thinking about it actually solving the problem? Like how effective is your thinking at preventing your fear from actually happening? How do I feel when I ruminate? How empowered do I feel when I ruminate? Um, Are there any benefits to ruminating? Sometimes yes, right? Sometimes it's like, yeah, it, it just makes me feel like at least I'm going over all the scenarios so that I'm not shocked when it happens, right? And then we might even look at that. How effective is that? Is that bringing you, is that how you want to be? Is that line up with your values? You know, so sometimes just looking into your values on like, how, how would you like to live is really be a big motivator to catch those obsessions and that mental rumination. Um, you're right. Stopping mental compulsions is nearly impossible, but the thing to remember is it's not. Yeah. It's only, it only feels impossible because you haven't tried it and and failed at it a lot. And it's, and it's basically like learning to do a new exercise. So, you know, if I said, you know, have, do you know how to do push-ups? And you said, no, I don't do push-ups. I'd say, okay, do as many as you can and then stop. And then tomorrow do as many as you can. And likely you'll do three or maybe two today, maybe none. <laughs> right. And then tomorrow you might be able to do half a one, and then if you keep practicing, you will slowly get better at it, but you're going to have to be able to fail a thousand million times at this to get the skill of bringing your attention back to the present. So the beauty is um, you've got all of these senses that you can use to help you. So once you're aware of it and you've acknowledged that it's not helpful and you've acknowledged that it doesn't make you feel better and you've acknowledged that it doesn't help you with your values then you have your senses to check in with. And I encourage people to be very tactile right on my office here. Like you can't see, I know about like, 
I have all these marbles, different shapes, different sizes. And, and I'm constant, my clients see me, I'm constantly touching and playing because it grounds me, right? I'm so present because I'm in touch with the sound of your voice and the look of your face and the feeling of my, this, I'm here with you. Um, And so little things that can bring me back to the present, keep me out of thinking about the future. Mm. Right. And so it's mostly mindfulness practice. Now I always say to my clients, are you going to suck at this? Yes. You are so (laughs) going to suck at this. Like embrace the fact that this is going to be messy and slowly strengthen that muscle. It's, it's, it's like learning a language. It takes time. Mm -hmm. I love that you bring up the idea of grounding techniques to stop the rumination because it's so true. That's what they are there for. Mm -hmm. And those are really helpful tools um, to get people to kind of disrupt that thinking pattern in the moment and just remember I am safe. I am here and I am okay. Right. So even for people who let's say have, haven't got all of those senses, right? Let's say that they're unable to see or they may be losing their hearing or, you know, we have to sort of make sure we're we're acknowledging those who don't have all of access mm. to all their senses. In fact, we have research to show that that actually can be better for your mindfulness because when you, sh- you know, we could do an experiment. If I put a ba- uh, mask over my eyes, I'm so much more in tune to sound and so much more in tune yeah. to taste when my not seeing so even if you're you know you're struggling in one area of senses or there's a different disorder that may make that harder for you um you can still very much engage in your senses Mm, so true and i i think it is very interesting while you're talking i always feel like i'm an auditory processor Mm -hmm. so for me some of my most valuable coaching sessions that i've had are on the phone because There's something that really gets me super focused when I'm not looking at the visual. Yes, exactly. And, and it's funny because I'm visual. So if I, I'm, if I'm and and a lot of my patients, I find visual helpful too, is actually to sit down and draw their cycle of rumination. And, And once it's on paper, they're like, oh my goodness, I can see it. I have a thought. The thought makes me uncomfortable. Then I try and solve it which then I get frustrated because I can't solve it. And then I'm anxious because trying to solve it has brought up seven ideas of that scammy. And then now I'm on fear. And then we go back into the cycle. So I'm a visual, I think visual is a big piece of understanding mm-hmm. your work too. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I definitely think drawing out cycles that you notice and patterns in your life in this way, or just other areas of life can be really helpful in learning about yourself and identifying different things that can help you get better, you know, or transform as a person. So that's really amazing information that you've just shared. So tell me a little bit about willingness. Is it willingness for treatment or is it willingness to face your fears? Yeah. So this is sort of a main point. I would really want your listeners to understand about the kind of work that we do with OCD and, and coexisting eating disorders is we don't actually just look at feared foods or general fears. We actually seek them out. So a huge part of the, the, the difference I would say of ERP is we try our hardest to 
sort of stand right up to fear and stare it in the face. Like that's where I love the work I do. So it's like, we're not going to, you know, we're actually going to seek out how to make our disorder flip out in our brain. Like let's try and really make it mad. And so we actually do a lot of work of like, how can we make it as mad as we can? Or how can we really make it pass out? You know, like so overwhelmed, so anxious, because a big part of the work we do is this bring it on, right? So as I was saying at the beginning is so often our patients come to us after doing a lot of treatment where the clinician or the co- like the coach or, you know, their doctor is saying, you try to bring the anxiety down. How can we get your anxiety to come down? And we don't do that at all. Mm-hmm. We actually talk a lot about how, bring it on. Come on. Like, I'm not afraid of you fear. Like I'm tired of doing everything you tell me to do right? Because, oh, maybe bad things will be happen. So a big shift in the, in the work we do is actually like, bring it, you know, I'm in charge. I'm the driver of this bus. You can come along. You can talk the whole way. You're like the radio in the background. You could tell me the whole day on how fat I'm going to be tomorrow. Cause of, you know, again, often obsessions around eating disorders have a lot of anti-fat bias in them, like yeah. using these words. So, so it's going to tell you all this stuff, right? Bring it. Like you can be there. You can say that all day long. I'm still going to the grocery store. I'm still getting the things that me and my clinician ordered, told me to get for for the day. I'm still going to eat it. You can be there the whole time. You can scream if you want, but you're not in charge. And that's a huge piece of the work we do. It's so paradoxical but it's very empowering when you can start to take that approach. I absolutely love that approach. And I know just by listening to you that whenever I have clients who are faced with the chance to face their fear, right. And they do face their fear. They feel so empowered and excited and motivated to keep going. They see the results immediately. If you, if you face the fear, it's, it's an immediate accomplishment in the recovery world. And if they, on the flip side, they succumb to that fear and they do not even try or they avoid it, they feel way worse, you know? Disempowered. Like, yeah, they feel disempowered. And that's, I hope that feeling of disempowerment can motivate people to start facing their fears. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the main thing I would want your listeners to hear is, um, you know, the high, the way I understand it is the higher your fear is, the more you stand up to it. So if you're having a really big fear day is the day you have to bring out all the swear words and you have to pull your shoulders back and you have to stand up in super lady, like superwoman pose, and you need to have a very firm talk with fear right? Mm. Um, that's, it, it's a lot of coaching. It's a lot of compassionate coaching. We're not yelling at it and calling it names because it's still our thoughts. We don't want to yell at ourselves, but it, it is calling the shots. Uh-uh, you, I know you're strong. Yes, I'm scared too, but we, you're not making this choice for me today. I'm, I'm tired of your choices. Your choices keep me stuck. And that's a huge piece of the work. So is there some dialoguing that happens um, usually? Yeah. 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 A lot. Coaching. Yeah. So how would you coach someone to face their fears in, in that moment? Like, are there any tools you have? I know we mentioned kind of that 
you should, the bigger the fear, the, the bigger you're going to kind of fight back kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. But when you're like working someone to build up to that point, what do you typically say to them or how do you get them to actually take action and do that thing? Well, it's not actually, I try not, I try to motivate through encouragement, but usually their values are the motivator. Mm -hmm. How yeah. do you want to live your life? What do you want your life to look yeah. like? Right. Mm -hmm. how does, how, how does fear stop you from living that? Right. So you, instead of you allying with your eating disorder and you're allying with your fear, now it's you and your therapist against your fear. And it's like, okay, we're going to line up. We're going to try to live our day based on our values and let's fear have a massive tantrum about that if it wants. Um, and you have to talk to fear, sometimes like a child, right? Like a loving parent, like I see you fear. I know you're trying to protect me, but I really want to be able to eat enough so I can concentrate so that I can go and get my degree. I really want this degree. And a part of me getting this school, you know, finishing high school or part of me doing this training I'm going to need so, like some sustenance. I'm going to need some nutrition so I can think clearly. And so I get your concern, but you're not in charge. That's sort of the, the conversation. I don't motivate them based on my values. I motivate them based on this. Mm -hmm. I think that's a nice opportunity for people to learn about themselves. You know, in order to do this work, you have to ask yourself, what are my values? What do I care about? What do I want my life to look like? What am I doing this for? And that, that's kind of like a life coach thing as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a type of, we, um, we use a lot of acceptance and commitment therapy mm -hmm. um, and it's, we call it ACT. So it's a huge part of, yeah, the, you know, life coaching or acceptance commitment therapy is a huge part of treatment. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, fabulous. This has been so enlightening. Thank you so much, Kimberly. Before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you to share where everyone can find you if they want your support. Sure. So um, you can get me on Instagram at Kimberly Quinlan. Um, I have a private practice. Um, if you Google my name, it should come up at the top. Um, Kimberly quinlan-lmft.com where I have nine clinicians who work with me. Um, I also have an online psychoeducation portal where we have courses and things like that. And that's cbtschool.com. And on October 1st, we have, uh, I have my first book that will be out um, called the self-compassion workbook for OCD, which is a treatment manual for people who have OCD. Wow. Congratulations. That's so exciting. exciting yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah it's, it's very exciting. Very scary at the same time. <laughs> I'm walking the walk over here. I think it's awesome. And yes, you are facing your fears. I'm sure that's like yeah. a vulnerability hangover just waiting to happen on October. Oh my God. <laughs> it's like, a, I will be panicking for sure. Oh my goodness. Oh, okay. Well, I'm so glad you shared all of that. And I'm sure people listening will love to get your workbook when it's finally out. And if you could leave our listeners with one small piece of advice or words of wisdom, what would that be? 
So everybody knows me for my motto that I have. And if you're following me on social media, you'll hear me say it all the time, which is it is a beautiful day to do hard things. So it's kind of a spin off of McDreamy from Grey's Anatomy, where he's like, it's a beautiful day to do surgery or it's a beautiful day to save lives. Because I basically have my patients do hard things every day, we say it's a beautiful day to do hard things. Um, And I encourage you guys to to think of it that way. Like find your fears and face them. You will be shocked at how empowered you will feel. That is a beautiful phrase to end our interview with. And I think it's just so nice. And it is very McDreamy. I also see a little Glennon Doyle in that. Yes. Yes. We have McDreamy and Glennon Doyle have a baby. It's exactly right. Yes, it is. And I actually said it on a, on a, on a live once, not even really planning it. And then within a few like days, people like I've been using it and it helps so much. And then it just became a thing. Now we have merchandise and all the things with it on there. So it's becoming a thing. Very cool. I was thinking you have to do merchandise with that on it. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, shirts and bags and mugs and yes, things. Yes, yeah. Definitely. All right. Well, thank you so much. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. You too.